The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. Nextdoor does have a, uh, an algorithm to decide what to show you at the top of your feed. And it does have, I think maybe more importantly, based on my experience, it has an algorithm to decide when to send you a push notification. What, what posts are gonna make your phone blow up and make you check it to see what's going on on Nextdoor. And from what I've seen, their biggest signal is when a post is getting a lot of replies in, in a short time period. And that tends to be when people are arguing. And so the posts that do make you pull out your phone and open Nextdoor tend to be the most divisive ones. They tend to be the ones, you know, when somebody posts something that's wrong or that's a lie or that's offensive, a lot of people are going to jump in and start arguing. That's going to be the one you see. So I think there's there's a problematic element there. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 13th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem. Evelyn Duek and I spoke with the journalist Willa Remus, one of the most astute observers of online platforms and their relationship to the media. Until recently, Will was a senior writer at the technology publication OneZero, and we dug into reporting he's done on the social media platform Nextdoor. The app is designed to connect neighbors, But Will argues that it's also filling the space left by collapsing local news organizations. Which may not be the best development when the platform itself is struggling with many of the common challenges of content moderation. And, of course, we also asked Will about the inescapable, ever-present elephant in the room. The Facebook Oversight Board's ruling on Donald Trump's account. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 13th. The Disinformation Next Door. Will, thank you so much for coming on. I think you're you're one of the sharpest commentators on tech and society right now, so we're really excited to have you on the show. But I don't think we can start to talk about content moderation this week without at least uh, very briefly revisiting the Facebook Oversight Board's decision, temporarily at least maintaining Facebook's ban of Trump's account. You wrote a piece about this for the New York Times. What was your reaction to the decision, and did anything about the ruling surprise you? Right. So full disclosure, I, I had written a big chunk of that piece for the Times before the decision. I actually expected something in between a a yes and a no. I mean, if you know, I, I follow both of your coverage of the Oversight Board and, and I've been watching it myself and they've developed a penchant for, for not just giving a decision, but for uh, always having a little extra to chip in, right? They they usually have recommendations. They usually they often have some qualms with the the process in some form or another. So I was ready for that. I I will say I didn't expect them actually to take such a narrow view of their mandate, which is something that I, that I know Evelyn wrote about in the aftermath of the decision. I, I thought that they, if anything, they might kind of push back at how limited their purview is. And I guess they did that in some ways as well. But but overall, they they really said, uh, look, we're, we're not here to make your policies. We're here to I- interpret how you applied them, right? 
Yeah, as you know, that surprised me about the decision as well. I am not surprised, however, to hear that you'd written a bit of the piece beforehand. Many people seem to have written their takes prior to the decision, but full credit to you, you seem to be one of the few ones that actually updated your piece in light of the decision (laughs) to take account of the the surprise and and the way that it was different to what we might have expected. So uh, well done. I want to ask you a little bit about the sort of a more meta question, which is about the public reaction to the decision. So we've been we've just been through an insane oversight board public relations roadshow. It's impossible to keep track of how many interviews and panels members have done. And one of the key questions about the board for for whether it quote unquote works is whether it can build up some legitimacy for itself and some some sort of like public acceptance. And so I'm curious about how you read the room on that front in the past week. Do you think that sort of most people were sort of positive, negative, surprised, something else entirely in light of the decision? It's interesting. I I almost felt when I was reading the decision, I almost felt like they were part of their goal was to establish their own legitimacy and credibility. I, I think and, and I'm reading a little bit into their minds and then also interpreting what I've seen of, of the interviews of some of the members of the oversight board after the decision. But I, I think they knew that if they took a strong stand one way or the other on Trump, they would be seen as somehow not objective by by a huge swath of the population. They would be seen as as compromised in some way. And I think maybe part of the reason that they interpreted their role so narrowly was because they want to be in it for the long haul, because they want to be seen as legitimate by people who hate Trump and by people who think that that either like Trump or think think that freedom of expression should play a a big role in these kinds of decisions and, and maybe should have militated in favor of allowing Trump back. It was it was also, you know, a very legalistic decision, as you've noticed. And, and that also seems like something that was done with an eye to their own legitimacy. In terms of how it's been received, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it could have been worse, right? I think there were there were lots of, of takes that, well, the, the oversight board punted or the oversight board uh, didn't didn't do its job or it's, you know, and then there were sort of the meta takes that, well, the oversight, like my own, like which is the oversight board isn't going to solve the, the real underlying issues here. But overall, I think they came out of this decently. I mean, they, they came out of this with people looking still to the oversight board for what their next decision w- will be. I mean, I don't think, I think, you know, it's, it's unpredictable what their decisions will be. But what, one thing we can predict now is that they're going to look, they're going to do sort of close reads of Facebook's own policies and make judgments based on that. Yeah, so I completely agree with that. I definitely think it was a strategic move by the board, and I'm not sure even if it really is a good indicator of what they'll do in future cases, because I, the realist in me thinks that they were very aware that this was a high-pressure point for them in terms of public reaction and not wanting to be too controversial. And so that sort of very much minimalist approach that they took in terms of their own jurisdiction and their role, I think, you know, was sort of uh, splitting the baby, a Solomonic sort of ploy in the moment. And I, I'm not sure that we'll see them do that again, but but we'll have to wait and see. As you said, we have a very small sort of sample size and it's very unpredictable so far how they're going to go. With the oversight board part of this conversation ticked and the obligatory revisiting of that conversation for for this week, I actually want to pivot from the giant platform that Mark Zuckerberg likes to call a community to actual communities and very small scale ones. 
at that. You've done some of the most in-depth and perhaps the only extensive reporting on Nextdoor. You wrote a really fascinating and well-done story on that. So I'm hoping that you can just walk us through the basics. What is Nextdoor? And maybe some of our listeners haven't heard of it. And what did you find out about content on the site? Nextdoor is a Silicon Valley startup. It's a social network. It was part of the crop of social networks that came along once Facebook had largely established its dominance over sort of conventional social networking. And it was becoming clear that being the next Facebook was not a winning strategy. Um, you know, there were a few years where where people really thought that there would be a next Facebook. Uh, and so Nextdoor was looking for, well, what else can we bite off? What other types of social networking are there that Facebook has not owned yet? And they looked at what we call in industry jargon, the hyper-local market. So this is a social network where you you sign up with your real street address and you have to verify your residence in, in one of a couple ways. And your network is literally the people who live around you. It's your neighbors. You By default, you see mostly posts from your own neighbors. When you go to post, you can, you can control how wide of a, or narrow of a circle geographically you prescribe for your post, but, but mostly you're posting to your neighbors and the people, occasionally the people in surrounding neighborhoods. So, and I'm not even talking about, you know, your city. It's, it's really, it's like your 12 block radius or your 20 block radius. And so it was initially mostly for sort of like coffee shop bulletin board stuff, you know, it was lost pets. Um, you know, do you need a, a writing tutor? who's a good local plumber is also for asking asking questions of your neighbors um, you know sort of how are things done around here uh, what do you all think about that construction site that's on the corner of of you know south street and broad you know what's going to be there you know is there a planning commission meeting about it so it, you know it was probably not a great candidate to to disrupt democracy in profound ways i mean it felt pretty mundane um pretty simple And yet, as local news, the thesis of my story that I wrote on this was that as local news has diminished in the United States, especially, um, local newspapers are drying up, dying, cutting back, outsourcing reporting. As that has happened, Nextdoor has started to fill some of that void. It's become a place where you find out what's going on in your town, where you discuss local politics and local political campaigns, especially in towns that don't have a strong local media, are being conducted more and more on Nextdoor. That's like the new the new court of local public opinion. And I thought that was fascinating and, and has some upsides and then some, some very problematic sides. I will say uh, just this past week, I spoke to a, a family member who lives in a rural area of the mid-Atlantic and uh, had recently joined Nextdoor and discovered that it was mostly people talking about Donald Trump and people giving various advice about, you know, local wildlife, including uh, bear spottings, since yes. it, it is a rural area and springtime is here. Yes, it is. It is your your best social network if you want to hear about the the local bear spottings for sure. We have those here, and in, in, I live in Newark, Delaware, which is like a a small city slash largish town slash suburban part of Greater Philadelphia. But we have we have bear spottings on next door here too. It's good to know. Good to keep you aware. So the the platform is pretty big. When you're writing about this, you had some back of the envelope math and suggested that it might have as many as 34 million US users, which is nowhere near Facebook, but actually makes it 
the United States' eighth largest social network. So why haven't we heard more about Nextdoor and about misinformation? It, it kind of seems like the platform has flown under the radar in the midst of this tech lash where platform after platform after platform has just come in for a sort of public lashing. Yeah. So I think there are three different reasons. They're all related and they're all tied to the the local structure of Nextdoor. So one reason from a sort of media criticism standpoint is in big cities, Nextdoor doesn't seem to play as large a role because there is substantial local media. There are lots of ways to get information about what's going on. And also when it does play a role, at least my sense is that it's often dealing with the the tensions of gentrification. And to put it more bluntly, it's a, it's like a lot of Karens yelling about homeless people. <laughs> and it's just like, it's, a, it's a, an experience that is distasteful and and worse to most folks who work in the media. And the national media, by the way, has become increasingly concentrated in big cities. You know, it used to be really distributed in the United States with all the metro, the major metro papers and then the small town papers. And, and over the years, the bulk of, of the country's journalists have, have concentrated in New York and, uh, and DC and to a lesser extent, LA and the Bay Area. And so, you know, most tech reporters just don't experience the different side of next door that you see in smaller communities. And I think think that they, so when you don't experience it, it's not top of mind. I think that's one reason. I think another reason is it is legitimately hard to write about next door because you can't see posts from outside your own neighborhood. So like I lived, I live in New York, Delaware. I can only see posts from New York, Delaware. If I'm trying to write about next door on a national scale and what it's like, how do I know that my experience of next door here in New York is in any way representative of what someone else's experience might be in uh, Joliet, Illinois, or, or East St. Louis, or the Bronx, or you know, in rural Maryland, as, as, you, as you mentioned? It might be totally different. So I might be screwing up the story if I write about it from from what I can experience. So I, I in this case, I got a, a burner account. I, I had sort of deputized my coworkers to give me reports from their next door neighborhoods to try to get a fuller picture. But I also just I just to some extent just accepted it and wrote about it from Newark's network, uh, the perspective of my local network here in Newark, hoping that that will be you know at least somewhat representative of, of similarly situated towns and networks. So that's reason number two is just the limited visibility into what's going on. I mean, research. I talk to academic researchers who've tried to study next door and they're like, they throw up their hands. They're like, we can't see anything. There's no data sets here. There's no access. There's no transparency. Um, and then the third reason I think is because it's actually a virtue of Nextdoor in a way when it comes to like foreign election interference. It's really hard for, for the Russians to get into the Newark Delaware network, right? Or or the East St. Louis network because of that, because of that structure. I mean, they could, you know, they could do it, but it would just it wouldn't be worth their while, right? Like they'd have to go into every little neighborhood's network if they wanted to, if they wanted to mess with uh, an election. Obviously, I'm simplifying here, um, but in general, like the opportunities for large scale. Uh, manipulation of the platform just aren't there because there is no large scale. It's all distributed. It's all small scale. It, it's only when you, it's only in aggregate that the scale of Nextdoor is large. So let's pick up on that sort of last point then. After the Capitol riot, you wrote about how Nextdoor had stopped recommending political groups to users. Was there any link between Nextdoor and the riot or is the platform, you know, just trying to get ahead of things before uh, local parents start planning an invasion of, of City Hall? <laughs> I think there there are some links. I mean, so Nextdoor, I, I, I think it's important to note, Nextdoor has a policy against discussions of national politics in sort of the main feed. Now, you can form a group, you can form a, a pro-Trump or anti-Trump group on Nextdoor that people can join. 
but unless people choose to join that group, they will not they will not see that in their main feed. And this this particular decision that I reported on was for them to stop recommending that you join those groups, right? So they're, they're trying to shut down the use case where uh, I moved to Sacramento and I joined Nextdoor, and the, one of the first things I see is join you know, Sacramentans for traditional family, right? If I'm, if I'm LGBTQ and I, and that's the first thing I see on Nextdoor, I have, wow, this network's not for me, right? So they're trying to avoid that. So they're, they're just limiting the, the visibility of those political groups. But, but in general, they do try to discourage national politics. They want it to be a platform for local issues. That turns out to be really hard to distinguish sometimes. And this also goes to their moderation structure. Their moderation is, is also highly distributed. They leave a lot of it to these community moderators who are just, they're really just users who are active users on the platform in a given town. They end up getting deputized with moderation power. They're not always particularly well-trained. Nextdoor does have some of its own moderators that sort of function like an appeals an appeals court in a way for the decisions by your community mods. But that means that the moderation is very different from town to town. It's It can be very arbitrary based on who happens to be a moderator. You know, one moderator might think that posting about a Black Lives Matter protest is, is a local issue and that's fine and that's great. Another one, uh, you know, there were moderators who, who said, oh, that's national politics. You can't talk about that here. And people are like, well, if we can't talk about racial justice, I mean, that's, you know, that affects us locally. We can, can't we talk about our local police department and the effect of their policing on the black community here. Nextdoor eventually stepped in after some press and said the discussion of racial justice, that, that can be a local issue. We're not going to disallow that. But really, so that so the moderation is arbitrary and the discussion of politics is supposed to be limited to local, but in practice, as your as your acquaintance in, in Maryland saw, their national politics do seep in and they inflect, you know, they inflect a lot of the discussion. So it's an interesting problem for them. And I think it goes to a broader issue, not to get us off track, but I think I think it goes to a broader trend that I'm seeing where social networks realize that when they get embroiled in national politics, they get bad press, right? It causes, it causes headaches for their PR department uh, and for their reputation. And they're trying to find, not just Nextdoor, but YouTube, Facebook, they're trying to find ways to kind of like quietly back away from national politics to the extent we, they can, but then they get into these definitional problems of what is politics, what is national politics. And that's, I, I think that's something that, that Nextdoor has, but it's also something that's emblematic of, of other networks. So I want to dig in a little bit more to the sort of the ways in which you write about how network is kind of filling in for the void left by collapsing local journalism. And there's obviously just an incredible amount to talk about there in terms of what's happening to local journalism and how various alternative spaces, including internet platforms, are are filling that. And I, I think one of the things that really jumped out at me in your story is that on the one hand, you know, this platform does potentially allow bad information to spread. On the other hand, you know, maybe this is just the equivalent of like a local bulletin board and you wouldn't have, you know, if you have a bulletin board in the town square, you wouldn't really think of needing, maybe you would now, but, you know, back in the day, you wouldn't really think of needing content moderators to, you know, go and review everything that everyone sort of pins to the board and make sure that it's, you know, in keeping with the town's community standards. Um, And you also have this story at the end of your article about how, Nextdoor might have contributed to higher local turnout on a referendum on school funding in your hometown, which kind of seems like a, a potentially good news story. So 
Should we be worried about Nextdoor? Like, is there a way in which this is a good news story about platforms kind of filling the space left by local news? I I think that might be a a little too optimistic. I definitely think that it's not all bad, right? Like there is there there is good stuff on Nextdoor. It is filling a, a useful role. I mean, the 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 genesis of this story was when I moved here to this town and people people told me, oh, are you on Nextdoor? Sign up for Nextdoor. I was like, yeah, I don't really like Nextdoor. I don't have a use for it. But then I did. And I, and I found myself turning to it, especially during the pandemic, because the local authorities would put out bulletins. Here's where the testing sites will be. Here are the hours. Here's why the downtown street is closed. Here's what the new restrictions are on restaurants. I found myself turning to it for news. And so I, you know, to the extent that the decline of local news is sort of exogenous to Nextdoor. And I think it mostly is. I mean, it's mostly other things about the internet that that caused the decline of local news. You could see Nextdoor as as helpful in in filling some of that void. Um, certainly, I find it useful on many occasions. I think I would hesitate to go from that to saying that next door is good <laughs> or that or that it does a good job of this i mean it does a job of it so one difference between next door and say the bulletin board in the coffee shop and let me digress for one second i think they're actually i think we may underrate the the level of content moderation that happened on coffee shop bulletin boards i mean if i if i went to my local coffee shop and wrote some kind of pro nazi propaganda you know, somebody at that shop is, you know, a barista is probably going to go and take that down, right? Whereas on, you know, on online platforms, you know, that can be that can be trickier just because there aren't always moderators looking at everything that gets posted. So anyway, just that's a digression. But in terms of a difference between Nextdoor and, and a coffee shop bulletin board, one is that Nextdoor does have a, uh, an algorithm to decide what to show you at the top of your feed. And it does have, I think, maybe more importantly, based on my experience, it has an algorithm to decide when to send you a push notification, what what posts are going to make your phone blow up and make you check it to see what's going on on Nextdoor. And from what I've seen, their biggest signal is when a post is getting a lot of replies in, in a short time period. And that tends to be when people are arguing. And so the posts that do make you pull out your phone and open next door tend to be the most divisive ones. They tend to be the ones, you know, when somebody posts something that's wrong or that's a lie or that's offensive, a lot of people are going to jump in and start arguing. That's going to be the one you see. So I think there's there's a problematic element there. I mean, I'm not saying there's no rationale for doing it that way, but I think there are problems with doing it that way. And it's like it's more like, you know, if your coffee shop bulletin board was was full of people writing replies to the posts and whichever, you know, whichever posts made people the most animated or angry would get the longest reply flyer lists and like block out all the other posts on the bulletin board um, until everybody was just on there replying to them. That's a terrible analogy, but like I'm trying to get at that. I'm trying to get at that difference. I, I will say one one other thing about Nextdoor that can be delightful, especially in smaller communities, is people really do go out of their way to post good news. There's there's one design element that I really like, which is instead of having a like button or a favorite button, they have a thank button. And so it incentivizes in this sort of subtle way and nudges you to post stuff that people find useful or that people appreciate. And that does nudge people to post good news. You know, oh, I saw, you know, I saw this local bakery 
you know, feeding the homeless after Thanksgiving. I just want to, you know, thank the people who, who were there or were a part of it. Or, you know, so-and-so helped my kid when they were, uh, you know, having a tr- having trouble uh, or they were playing out in the street and, you know, whatever. Uh, anyway, the, it, is a, it is a place where people share positive stuff. And, and so there can be some positive community building elements around that that are different from kind of the toxicity of, of, policing people or, or racial profiling that, that, that Nextdoor also suffers from and which has, has gotten more press. That's such a great example, the thank you button, of how design elements or affordances on a platform can fundamentally shape the content on the platform. Like we talk about content moderation so much as the rules around what you can say and maybe how platforms treat content once it's already on the site in other ways than just taking it down. But that idea of how you design a platform from the get-go really influences the dynamics on the on the platform. You know, you can imagine a Facebook, well, you can't maybe, but we could have had a Facebook without a like button or a share button or a Twitter without a, a retweet button being so prominently displayed or something like that. And it would be an entirely different platform. At the same time, some of the things that you just mentioned all sound incredibly familiar. The most inflammatory and controversial posts are getting the most engagement and uh, are rising to the top. Apart from those similarities, you know, Facebook and Nextdoor are sort of extremely different platforms. And I think, you know, God, I hope we won't be seeing a Nextdoor oversight board anytime soon. But at the end of the day, sort of all content moderation problems have certain things in in common. Actually, I have to go back now that we've heaped all this praise on Nextdoor for the thank button. I mean, just open my app and it is the default is still like there is a thank button and people do use it, but the default actually is like. So maybe I need to retract that part. I do recall people using the thank button a lot on Nextdoor and it, it does seem to encourage good behavior, but I was wrong. It is not the default at this time. Well, any Nextdoor engineers listening to this, here's a free piece of advice about a change you could make. So in 2019, you wrote about the one rule of content moderation that every platform follows. Um, And so that would apply from Facebook to Nextdoor to all the others. I'm hoping you can talk to us a bit about that. What is the one rule? So the one rule that I saw playing out regardless of a platform's stated policies was this. If a content moderation decision becomes too controversial, change it. That's pretty simple. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. So I wrote this after Google, uh, after YouTube had changed its mind about Steven Crowder, the, the, the really intentionally offensive right-wing comedian who had been bullying, harassing, encouraging harassment of uh, a Vox personality named Carlos Maza. And a lot of it was, was deeply homophobic. And uh, YouTube initially, on its initial review, they said, well, it, does, it doesn't violate our rules. And they left his videos up and they faced a huge backlash, not only from the public, but from their their own employees, uh, especially their, their LGBTQ employees. And lo and behold, they took another look and <laughs> realized, oh, it actually, you know, it does violate our rules. <laughs> and they suspended Crowder. Uh, he has since come back and I think become suspended again. But it, it reminded me of the cycle that played out with Alex Jones, right, with the, the InfoWars uh, conspiracy theorist and hate monger, who all of the platforms initially said, well, yeah, we, we, we don't 
condone anything he's saying here, but he's not violating our rules. And so we're going to leave it up. And then the pressure built and built and built. And then one of them, I forget which one, one of them said, you know what, actually, Alex Jones does violate our rules and we're going to boot him off. And then like within a week, all the others had done the same, not just like the big ones, but like, you know, the, the tiny Spotify, like the little social networks that you barely hear about were coming out with press releases. We're banning Alex Jones too. And this is not to say that these decisions are, are right or wrong. I have my own views on that, but it is certainly hard to escape the impression that that ultimately these decisions come down to public relations above all and that if if people are really mad enough about a policy or a decision they'll find a way to to change it and to justify that by appeal to some you know that either they'll change the rules or they'll interpret them differently or say that new evidence has come to light so i want to push you on that a little bit and in this sense so first of all you also wrote an article just a couple of months ago in in March about how YouTube had explained why a racist Steven Crowder video didn't violate its hate speech rules um, after he did a segment mocking black farmers and and they sort of didn't didn't take it down. So first of all, that sort of you know shows that maybe maybe the rules don't change, but they they sort of react in high profile incidents. But the other thing that I sort of want to want to press on is. What does controversy mean and who decides that? Because we're kind of in this very polarized environment where any decision is going to upset approximately 50% of people. And so is it just who tweets enough and, and gets all the retweets? Or how do you think platforms operationalize that? Because I think what we've seen over the past few years is platforms trying to walk that line. Like they're just trying not to get into too much trouble, but Every decision is political in some sense, and so every decision does generate controversy. Yeah, so so uh, you're right. I mean, it's it's not quite as simple as I said because I, I think there is there's an interplay right between. I think they they do have an interest in maintaining consistency to the extent they can, and it's just my point was more that that interest gets overridden when the backlash grows strong enough. And in fact, the Crowder, the Crowder example, I think is, is illustrates that really well because yes. So I wrote, I wrote a few months ago about how YouTube had declined to take down a Crowder video that seemed like it was just as bad as the, as the, the previous ones, at least it seemed that way to me. And yet they were standing on their rules and keeping it up. But, but it, interestingly enough, I mean, I'm not, there's a, you know, I'm not a, a pure observer here, right? Like I'm part of the system. I'm in the media. So my story generated, you know, led to other stories. And uh, soon enough, uh, YouTube had changed its mind again and they did suspend Crowder again indefinitely. So, uh, you know, that was another case where they said at first uh, it, it's, it doesn't violate our rules. And then between my article and other people's articles, they said, oh yeah, it does. But, but it, there is that question. You're right. I mean, how do you measure the backlash? How do you weigh the different elements of the backlash? Because there's always a backlash from, from both sides. Uh, and I think, you know, that's probably a little different at each, at each platform. I mean, it, it, they're not all the same in this respect, but I think, I think the two forces that may be the strongest, and maybe there's a third one now that the Democrats are in control, but until the Democrats took control, I think the two forces that were the strongest were their own employees from the left applying pressure. I think they listened to that. Right. These companies care deeply about retaining talent. They also just care about like not getting yelled at or called evil 
by their own workers on Slack every day when they're trying to get their work done, you know, and, and uh, they have these internal firestorms that they have to put out and these, their all hands meetings get taken over by their employees being furious with them. That's a very profound motivator for them to listen when their employees say that this Crowder video is hate speech and that we need to find a way to take it down. So I think that's one. I think the other one, especially until the last election, was the pressure from the right in Congress. I mean, conservatives in Congress were consistently calling hearings, bringing the social networks in to justify when they took down a, a conservative figure or, or alleged bias against conservative speech. And so those were the two sort of main countervailing forces, I think, that they really cared about. I mean, they care about bad headlines too, but they're so used to bad headlines by now. You know, I don't, I think the press is somewhere down the rungs of, of priority in, in terms of who they listen to in those backlashes. Now that the Democrats are in control and calling the hearings, it, it is, I think it's interesting to see whether the right still has a countervailing force or whether we move toward just sort of more and more aggressive moderation now that you have kind of the press, the employees and uh, Democrats in Congress all pushing on the side of uh, taking down hate speech, uh, of getting tough on misinformation. That's a really interesting point about how the election sort of changed these dynamics. And I mean, I think that the most obvious example of that maybe is how once it turned out that Trump was no longer going to be the president in a few months, platforms suddenly mysteriously became a lot more open <laughs> to taking down his posts or limiting right. his access to his various accounts. But I am curious, you know, what you think we've been seeing in terms of how, you know, we've now had a few months with a new president, a new Congress, how these dynamics are shifting in part because, I mean, the nature of U.S. politics is there's often a, a swing back and forth. And there's been a lot of discussion about how, you know, the Democrats are going to have a really tough midterm coming up in 2022. Do you think that tech companies and workers are are keeping that in mind? Like, how, how do you see them navigating the sort of changed, but maybe not permanently changed political waters? Or is it really just too soon to tell? That's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's too soon to tell, but I think there's there there are a couple of things that that we can maybe glean from what we've seen so far. I mean, for for one thing, just on the workers' point, like I don't really think for the most part tech workers care about you know who's in Congress. They're they're not they're not really in these debates. They don't tend to be the ones that are looking out for the company's bottom line. They don't tend to be the ones that are worried about regulation. In some cases. I think that a lot of the employees of these companies, especially those who lean left, which is probably the, the majority, uh, would welcome more regulation. I mean, they're mad at their own companies. They don't like having to go out with with their friends who aren't in tech and and defend their jobs and justify why the company they work for isn't evil and isn't empowering Nazis and bigots and and Donald Trump. You know, I think that's their their big motivators. This is their livelihood, and they were told this is a mission driven company and that they're doing good in the world. And now they find themselves feeling like maybe they're doing bad in the world. But but as far as the executives, yes, I think they're certainly still on the lookout for regulation. One difference is, you know, the, the, the way that the Republicans and the Democrats uh, in D.C. and on Capitol Hill get their message across, I mean, they, they, they do it in different ways. The Republicans are not shy at all about really working the refs, about really grandstanding about these individual decisions, about trying to apply pressure on a decision like whether you ban Trump or whether you whether you take down you know this or that post or you know they they will wade right into that and yell at the platforms for individual decisions the democrats tend uh, you know and this you all would know better about sort of this the structural forces here but the democrats tend to 
channel their criticisms through more sort of, I, I guess, procedural language. I mean, they, they, yes, I think they're like, I think Biden, one reason that he viscerally doesn't like Facebook is because of the misinformation he sees about himself or his allies on there because of the attacks, uh, you know, against him that he sees on there. But when he critiques Facebook, he doesn't yell about individual decisions, right? He talks about their market power. You know, they'll talk about, uh, you know, reforming Section 230, but they're less they're less uh, militant about like getting rid of Section 230. So it's a different kind of pressure, and I, I think it's probably ultimately, you know, has the same roots. But the Democrats tend to talk about it in in terms of like big picture structural issues with how we govern social media in general, as opposed to yelling that they made the wrong decision in one case or another. Does that make sense? It does. I, you know, I think you're being a little over generous to Democrats. <laughs> maybe. You know, I think just recently, maybe last month, a bunch of them sent a letter to some platforms asking them to remove six specific individuals who were spreading um, this <laughs> right. <sort of> disinformation. <laughs> um, so it's not like their hands are completely clean. But I, I do think that, you know, they have been sort of, especially more recently, uh, honing in on things like privacy, targeted ads, the algorithm. And so let's go there. Let's talk about the algorithm and that Nick Clegg post. It goes back to your point about the difference between a bulletin board and a social media platform and the the dynamics that, that drive it. So Facebook Vice President Nick Clegg recently wrote a 5,000-odd word post that sort of took on the gospel that platforms are bad because they algorithmically amplify polarizing and inflammatory content because that attracts eyeballs, meaning users will spend more time on the site, which means Facebook can sell more ads, which means dot, 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 step three, profit. He argued that that's just false, that a rational ad revenue-driven company will not want to ceaselessly amplify content that pushes out buttons in the short term but makes us feel icky in the long term, and that advertisers don't want that either because they don't like their ads appearing next to controversial content. So he kind of argued that the problem is not Facebook, but it's us, that people like that kind of engaging content and that that's always been true back to the days of yellow journalism. And so algorithms may respond to that by giving people more of what they want, but it is what we want in the first place. That doesn't seem obviously wrong, but I think you had a sort of more nuanced take than that. So I'm curious what you make of those arguments. Yeah, I don't think it's obviously wrong either. I mean, I think I think he has a point. I think there there is this overly simplistic view that that I see a lot on on Twitter, especially that the reason that Facebook doesn't ban Trump or doesn't take down Alex Jones or doesn't crack down on misinformation is because it likes it. Like it, it's it that that's what generates engagement. Engagement is gen- what generates ad revenue, and so they have a financial interest in keeping that stuff up. I think I do think that's too simple. Facebook, I, I've been covering Facebook since at least 2012. And since at least 2014, the executives I talked to there have understood and evinced an understanding that their long-term interest depends less on how much engagement they can get today and more on whether that engagement is engagement that their users find valuable and worthwhile and whether it's stuff that 
will tend to make for a sustainable platform. And so Facebook has probably understood it longer than that. I mean, to be honest, the reason Facebook crushed MySpace was because MySpace was poorly moderated. It was like, it was, wasn't just poorly moderated, it was poorly designed, but it was full of spam and porn. And, and you know, it was just a wild west. And Facebook came along and the reason it won, the primary reason, was because it was so much, it felt cleaner and safer. So Facebook has always understood that that making users feel safe and comfortable is a key to its long-term success. So I, I agree with that much. That said, it doesn't mean that they're always going to do it, right? Like just because they, you know, we we can know something in our in our head, in our cerebral cortex, and yet day to day when we're making decisions, we don't always apply that knowledge. And so there have been numerous examples. The Wall Street Journal has done some of the best reporting on this. The Washington Post has done great reporting as well. There have been numerous examples over the years where if there was a Facebook initiative to try to make the platform sort of healthier in some way in the long run or to prioritize higher quality information sources or to uh, tamp down uh, algorithmic amplification of divisive content. And again and again, those efforts have gotten nixed at the top level. And I don't think that's because of short-term engagement so much. I think that I think that definitely plays a role. I mean, I think if you come, if you come to a product meeting at Facebook and you're like, hey, I've got this great new change, it's going to result in better quality information on Facebook. But it does, we did find it reduces engagement by 8% and it increases the bounce rate by 4%. And then, you know, and then the executive's like, okay, well, how much better is the information? And they're like, you're like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's hard to quantify. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. That's not, you're not going to win that argument, right, in that room. So in that sense, I think it does come into play. They do check the effect on engagement. But, but more than that, they also just have this ear. You know, Zuckerberg has Joel Kaplan in his ear. He has other people in his ear saying, if you start shaping this platform the way the left wants, the way liberals want, the way the media wants, you're going to lose the right. You're going to end up with a splintering and you're going to lose the ubiquity that Facebook's entire business model is built on. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, Clegg is right. It's not as simple as some critics say. It's also not as simple as Clegg says, where they're just always necessarily going to make the right long-term choice because they understand that they have a long-term interest in doing so. So I wanted to close out by zooming out a little bit and maybe turning back to the interaction of social media with the sort of the broader media ecosystem. So you worked most recently at, at One Zero for Medium, which announced a whole bunch of buyouts for its staff last month, and you were one of the ones that took it. Um, we don't want to make you comment on that situation specifically, but it is related to something that you've written a lot about over the years, which is the media ecosystem, how it's sort of struggling, and what the role of social media is in that. I don't want to ask you, you know, whether Facebook took your job or anything like that, but I do think that I'd be interested to hear your sort of reflections on what the nature of the problem is in media right now and how, you know, various entities, governments, social media, whatever is sort of a mover and shaker here are either contributing to that or making it worse. Yeah. And, and stop me if this is too obvious, but I, I think there's there's a there's a, a big picture point here, which is not novel, but which continues to apply, which is I think the the Internet did a lot of things to the media. But one of the most important to me in terms of what social media in particular has done to traditional media is that people used to consume media by choosing their source first and then hearing or or seeing or or reading whatever that source picked out for them. 
and that creates a whole set of incentives around you know how sources position themselves what news they cover how they cover it and that was the previous regime in the social media regime people do not choose their publisher first they choose their platform first so you know facebook snapchat twitter tiktok they log on your google they they log on to that platform youtube evelyn <laughs> i could hear evelyn but youtube thank because, you <laughs> so they choose their platform first and then they see the news that 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 platform has picked out for them but the platform isn't picking the news in the same way that a publisher picks the news it isn't doing it by hand it isn't taking into account I mean, it, it isn't even considering things like newsworthiness that the traditional publishers have long considered core to, to their decision making because it isn't considering truth value it isn't considering whether something's dangerously wrong it's considering a, a set of things that are that are encoded in the algorithm they tend to be how engaging is it um, how how often are people you know how many people are clicking on this and so that creates a whole different set of incentives for the not only for the readers of the platforms, but for the publishers. So the publishers producing news now are competing in an environment where people are not choosing them first. They're choosing the platform first, and then they have to have the headline that grabs people's attention. And so that has just changed the entire production of of media. It's 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 changed how you know we've seen how it changes headlines, but it changes every aspect of how the news is covered and how media gets gets framed and presented by publishers because they're just competing on totally different terms now. I think that has been the most destructive effect overall. And it doesn't get it's it's known and yet it doesn't get the attention I think it deserves. I mean the, the publishers the the criteria the values that that determine what people read and what people see are just totally different now and now those values are driven almost entirely just by what pushes people's buttons what gets them to click what gets them to like what gets them to to comment angrily and i think that's really underlying so many of the problems that we see in media today all right. I've joked before about how we always seem to find a way to end on a grim note. So <laughs> on, on that grim note, uh, Will, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This one. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.